It's time for building the game. Building the game. With Jason and friends. Tabletop game design. With Jason and friends. It's at the end of the episode. That's when it technically ends. Hello and welcome to Building the Game, a documentary podcast. Today is Monday, September 11th, and you're listening to episode 589. As always, I am your host, Jason. Here today, joined by recent person I saw, but you probably didn't hear, uh, because that was a Gen Con, and uh, their name is Jack, Jack Rosetree, and uh, they're here to join us, and I like them. What's up, Jack? Hi, how's it going? <laughs> good, good. You, uh, uh, yeah, last time we were on, we were talking about your game, It's Complicated, mm-hmm. uh, and how dang complicated it actually is. Uh, beautiful, beautiful, but complicated as heck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maya Thomas did the design on that and absolutely knocked it out of the yeah, park. Yeah, she like, is fantastic at that. It's got um, like 1950s diner vibe or, it you does. know, 1990s, 1950s diner vibe. Okay, I, I don't yeah, know that's what the... <laughs> that's No, no, that is. I don't know how, but that is the perfect description of. <laughs> it's like when you say like. You sound like this person doing an impression of that person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> when when I, I was taking Japanese in college, I was told that I was speaking it with a French accent, which <laughs> I don't even know where I got that from, but uh, it went poorly. <laughs> oh, oh, I had a uh, Spanish in like uh, in high school for three years and I was a straight C student with my Spanish stuff. Like it was just, I just didn't click for me. And I was just a stupid uh, kid that didn't want to listen, but, and I should have listened more because I would love to be able to speak it better now. Um, And it was always like Mexico Spanish, right? And every teacher you ever had was like, that's all you need to know. Don't worry about this Spain stuff. We literally (laughs) live next door to Mexico. Did it in college. Same thing until my last semester. And it was a uh, young teacher from uh, Spain. And he was like, you will learn all of the Spain stuff. So there's like a whole conjugation of verb types that you never use in Mexico Spanish that you exclusively use in um, in Spain Spanish. And yeah, that was the hardest thing I ever had to do wow. because we literally spent years ignoring it, which was super dumb for the record like they should have taught it all to (laughs) us but like school systems yay yeah and um yeah so anyways um that was that was like in everyone in the class was like oh no because every spanish teacher had done the same thing to them throughout high school as well Mm -hmm. so uh, (laughs) yeah they were also teaching incredibly wrong history and stuff so you know there's that too oh I have a lot of feelings right now about stuff like that. So, Yeah. Uh, my I mean, parents didn't yeah. tell me I was dyslexic until halfway through college. What? Yeah. Um, so, so there were a lot of problems where, that suddenly made a lot of sense when I figured it out. And it wasn't that like I pushed them for it and they told me um, I, I went to the Dean of students office and the Dean of students uh, rep, talking to me said you know the issues you're explaining sound a lot like dyslexia i was like oh okay and and then i started doing research and and things piece themselves together 
Wow, was it like if I can ask, was it like if I just between you and me? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, um, like was it uh like they just were like, oh, if we tell them, then it'll like I Yeah, I so yeah, this so this extends to a lot of uh family issues, but the short version is that uh they when I was very, very young, um mm -hmm. one of the family friends who is in the school system um, came over at one point and had a discussion with my parents about the fact that I was very intelligent, but there's definitely some glitches going on in the system that uh, my parents weren't really sure how to explain. And so what they were told was, don't get them tested. Uh, if they get tested, they'll get they'll they'll get put in the remedial classes, and they will hate it and they'll be bored because they are a very smart person. Um, and my parents took this to mean never admit that there's any problem. They'll mm. just figure it out on their own. Oh. Um, and so even when I finally like called them up and said, hey, I think I'm dyslexic. Um, my dad's response essentially was to yell at me and be like, no, you're just being lazy. Uh, because yeah. he, he still yeah. did not want to admit it even then. Um, and and again this this all extends through a lot of things but uh i'm sure yeah. that out was a huge step towards actually being able to like complete my degree and you know right, get along right. in, in life beyond that right right yeah and it's i mean i i've experienced some similar things where you know parents don't always aren't always forthright about what's going on with you you know mm -hmm. mentally and that's that's really tough because self-awareness is like a really important skill um, in life, I would, I like to argue that it's literally when it comes to dealing with other people, self-awareness is the number one thing mm -hmm. you can do, because if you're aware of yourself, uh, it allows you to understand a lot of other things about people, you know, and realizing that it's not just them, that it's you when there's a problem, right? Right. And, uh, uh, just recognizing the impact you have on the people yeah, around you is a right? really big thing. Or when someone says, Hey, you know, Jack, when you did this in this conversation, this was bad. And you're like, no, it wasn't. But when you're self-aware, you can say like, oh, like, let me think about that. Like, was that like, you know, was that me that, you know, and, and you know, screwed up there? And um, yeah, I just think that self-awareness is so important. And when you hide stuff like that from your kids, whew, yeah, it, it yeah. <laughs> denies them the chance because it, what it does is it made you say like, maybe I am just lazy, right? I mean, I don't know if that's what mm -hmm. you actually said, but I know for me. With a lot of stuff when they were like you're just not applying yourself and i was like maybe yeah, those, not, those words right? exactly yeah right just need to apply yourself more and in, in some of my cases it wasn't incorrect but the you know the issue like for me a lot of times was that the stuff was boring because it wasn't challenging mm -hmm. but also i wasn't a huge fan of being challenged so like, right. you know i didn't want to be in the in the high level classes um, I just wanted to get through school and get through the stuff that I, I understood was a waste of my time when it comes to, you know, someday and how you're going to use it. Some mm -hmm. of it I understood was important, but a lot of it, you're like, this isn't going to matter. It, it's funny. Well, that, and, oh, go ahead. Go and, ahead. Yeah. The issue that I ran into to take it back to foreign language uh, is that, you know, in elementary, middle and high school, I was smart enough to outpace the difficulties I had with foreign language, which is really like where a lot of my dyslexia kind of hyper focuses and becomes a problem mm -hmm. um, because I can retain basically anything, but my recall is just atrocious. So like 
the information's up there. It's just not accessible uh, most of the time. And so when I got to college and they actually started paying attention to whether or not I was able to recall the stuff, mm-hmm. suddenly I couldn't pass any foreign language. And that was a requirement for my degree. And, and it became this huge thing. And I, I tried like five different languages and I failed all of the classes, which meant that I lost my scholarships. And that had, you know, derivative impacts on me even today because I had to take student loans at a very like, like emergency, like we're going to charge you everything rate all because right going into college i was not equipped with the information of hey you're dyslexic and this is going to be a problem for you right 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 and there are resources to help with those sorts of things Mm -hmm. you know i mean gosh that's um so my last story here that when it comes to my there was a teacher who we were reading we there are two issues i had in that class one was for the first time ever uh i read a book for an english class that really clicked for me you know and it was like hey read you know a chapter a week and we're going to go through this book or whatever it wasn't that but it was like you know read a chapter a night or something like that and the book was of mice and men and when i started reading it it just clicked and i literally read the book in like three days like i just plowed through it and then come two to three weeks later by the time we had to take the test i did awful on it because like the specific things you had to recall not mm-hmm. just about the general story, but very specific <laughs> things that you would recall if you had just read that chapter the night before, right? As you were taking these quizzes and stuff, I would have done great, but I wasn't. But it was the first book that I read in school that really like affected me, you know, which was sad, right? Because what it taught me was like, you were into this book and because you were too into this book, you failed <laughs> this stuff, <laughs> which is awful. But I remember my teacher, when I, I said to her, we were reading some awful book. I think it was The Scarlet Letter, which I still believe is one of the worst books I've ever read in my entire life. I, I If I went back and read it now, maybe it's maybe it's better. And if you love this book, I'm sorry. But like um, at the time, I literally just it, thought I hated it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to my teacher, like, why do I have to know about this? Why? And she <laughs> said, she said, because someday you're going to be at a cocktail party. And I thought, unlikely. And she said, and someone's going to talk about this kind of stuff and you're going to be better for being able to have an intelligent conversation about this. And at the time I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Um, And now to date, I've never had to talk about that Scarlet Letter at a cocktail party. But I'll tell you what, because of my understanding of all this stuff from English and the books and all this stuff. I am just just a meme lord, you know, like I just completely get every meme like so in a way she was right, but not in a way that either of us could have predicted, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Well, and when I'm at a cocktail party and somebody brings up the scarlet letter nowadays, I just change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> I I I've never been at a party where anyone ever brought up the scarlet letter. Um except for maybe if somebody was like, "What are books you hate?" and I was like, "Oh, let me tell you." <laughs> There was a whole, there's a whole chapter in a Scarlet Letter where the guy is just describing a bush as the lady walks past it. And I was like, listen, I don't get this. Um, <laughs> it wasn't honestly until I started reading Vonnegut at the end of high school by uh, a, a English teacher gave me a copy of Cat's Cradle and, as a graduation present. And that was when reading changed for me because I was like, this guy is weird. This guy writes like my brain works. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And it's this jumble. And I was like, 
I and I went through and I literally read every book I could find of his. Mm-hmm. Um, some were good, some were not so good, but like I, I read them all because they were weird, and that was my first exposure to like weird, like you know, writing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was a that was a discussion that had nothing to do with was, games, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> Let's have the listeners. We're going to need you to read the Scarlet Letter and write a book report about how awful it is. Or or uh, don't and just or, change the subject. <laughs> or don't read it and just agree that it was awful. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. So um, is there anything uh, you've been doing lately you want to mention? <laughs> since um, oh, man. we just had a big old thing before we got to the topic. Uh, well, I'm looking for a new job. Um, yes. That, yes. Was, that was kind of out of the blue. But uh, that's that's mostly it. Um, you know, bright side, there have been a lot of like household chores that uh, I really have been neglecting. And so uh, trying to catch back up on some of that uh, just because I have the energy for it. Um, you know, as as stressful as the situation is, um, it also made me realize how much I was letting the job affect my psyche and yeah, my energy yeah. level. And and, you know. Like I definitely handled it better than I've handled previous jobs that kind of had the same impact on me, but it's still, you know, um, it, it takes its toll. And so, uh, I'm, it's I'm tough, hoping, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm definitely stressed, but I'm optimistic. Um, I've got a lot of lines in the water, uh, that I think could, could turn into something good. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and I just, uh, you were, you were calling out for, uh, show topics and i was like well i have the energy and the time for this and this is something i think i threw at you a while ago um and maybe you yeah, thought i was joking um i but... never i never think you're joking the craziest thing you say and i'm like no i'm pretty sure they're they're serious about that <laughs> um so yeah so i'm here for it awesome awesome yeah i wish you luck on the job search i know that that can be tough uh especially in our industry but you got some good skills and uh you know some good people and you're a good person and i'm sure i'm sure you'll find the right fit um but it's tough when we leave a place even if it was a place that wasn't good for our mental health it still is i know there's something ingrained in us Mm -hmm. about you know which is all bs what's ingrained in us about jobs and how we should be right um but it's it's tough yeah it's real yeah. tough well and and my wife and i bought our first house this year so you know the timing feels rough because right uh, right i mean at know. least it wasn't literally like the month after you bought your first house. right, right. That would, um, that's probably the worst timing <laughs> um yeah that was when our car broke down and right i remember literally that. replace oh, it <laughs> it's, it's been it's already been a year but uh you know um uh my wife's been just crazy supportive and uh handled it far better than than i did um so you know and i you know we were kind of talking about just where we're at mentally and both of us are kind of like you know what like we're we're here together we're in the best place you know that we've ever been in our lives and uh i think it's gonna work out just fine that's good that's good to hear i know that my wife when i i left a job that was super bad for my mental health several years ago and, and my wife was the one who was super supportive and was like you should just leave there like it's not good for you it's not good for us just leave and mm-hmm. uh that's empowering to feel that way um even if it's a tough choice you know so yeah go partners yeah plus one for supportive partners <laughs> <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, so you brought uh, a super weird topic, as I would expect from you and appreciate from you. <laughs> so um, let's let's hear about that. Yeah. So uh, the short pitch is you should be willing to lie to your playtesters. Um, and uh, it, it, it comes from a couple different places. Uh, and I've got some notes for some specific lies that you can tell to your playtesters. Uh, but the main thing is that... Uh, we don't generalize you know, in our lies. we got specific right, right. fibs to tell We have them. very specific reasons for the lies. Um, but the main thing to, to keep in mind when you're playtesting is that the goal is testing the game. Um, the goal is testing the experience. The goal is testing the balance. And if lying to your playtesters helps you achieve that goal and and move forward in that faster and more efficiently and more pointedly than it would otherwise, then by all means, lie to your playtesters. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, so let's uh, let's dive right into it. So, so my first note is literally just seeding decks. Um, I've, I've played a lot of card combat games, a lot of just basic card games. And a really great way to test balance is to give players what you consider unbalanced uh, card combos and make sure that they get them. Um, and, and you can do this by, like, if you're playtesting physically, you can literally just see the deck ahead of time and not play tell the players that you've done that. Um, and you can give the players these combos and see if they, one, if they notice that the combos exist, and two, if they have the combo right out of the gate, how bad of an impact does it have on the rest of the game? Um, and do the other players have counterplay? And just by setting that simple thing up, you can test a lot of facets of your game and a lot of the balance of your game without even like, you know, play testing until you just happen to strike that combo. Right, right. Which is is another thing, right? I mean, like I've had that where you don't think of a combo and then someone happens to get that combo mm -hmm. and then you're like, oh, well, that is game breaking. <laughs> yeah, and, and it can honestly just be as simple as, here's a couple of synergistic cards for one player and here's non-synergistic cards for everybody else and just mm -hmm. see how much of a different uh, swing that makes because you know games <clears throat> particularly like a lot of engine building or deck building games um if like because there is that luck factor of like sometimes i'll just i won't get the cards that i need to combo off mm -hmm. um testing the extremes and saying okay if i have a player sitting at the table and they have the combos and i have another player sitting at the table and they don't can both players at least enjoy the game and if the answer is no then you probably have some issues um if the player with the combos is soundly defeating everybody at the table so so tragically that they don't enjoy it you know they don't have decisions to make because the, mm -hmm, the game is mm -hmm. comboing for itself you know, that's a bad thing. And if a player that's in the, you know, kind of disadvantaged position just can't do anything and they can see like, you know, halfway through the game that there's no chance that they can compete, that also feels like a really bad experience. And so trying to figure out ways of um, fixing that uh, or at least giving the experience that like, like a lot of games add like theme or catch up mechanics. And I'm, I, I am very, on the fence about ketchup mechanics on the whole um because Ooh, they interesting can, 
Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's a whole that's podcast a whole of itself. Thing. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on the opposite of what you just said. Um, I, like I, I appreciate the what they can do, but a lot of catch-up mechanics I feel like are very arbitrary. Like arbitrary, you're losing here some points, which doesn't feel like I've done anything to award to to benefit myself. It's just the game saying, "Hey, I want you to still be in it." <clears throat> Right. Yeah, that's that's fair. I have, like I said, I have a lot of. Yeah, that's that's again that's a whole other thing. On the um, so but on the lying thing with specifically with the card combos and stuff, I think one thing um to really analyze is the players you're giving those combinations to, right? Like if these are known play testers, right? Right. Like that, you want to make sure that those combos are, we'll say, correct in a way that they're going to be, you know useful and and not uh, do you know you like i like the idea of you know saying like okay is this person good at seeing combos right because like otherwise you give a you give that like you give that good combos to somebody who's gonna just whiff it right that's not gonna be useful um and or you give the lack of combos to a player who will just whiff it either way. And suddenly now they don't even realize that they're like so screwed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's play testing. So there's, there's a lot that kind of goes into that, but um, you know, out of a hand of, let's say even seven cards, um, which is on the, the bigger end of a lot of like deck builders. Oh yeah. Um, yeah if two of the cards show synergy just by having the same icon on them, most players, even, even players that are not used to those games are going to kind of gravitate towards those because we are pretty hardwired to say, Oh, I've got a handful of spades. That means I care more about spades than anything else. Maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, but right. Right. That is, yeah, that is, yeah, that's true. Um, but I, I, again, you know, I, th- I think even, testing whether or not a player notices and takes advantage of a combo is still worth knowing. Um, You know, if players can't identify the synergy in your game, that on its own tells you a lot about how your game is telegraphing itself. Well, it, it depends. I think, I think it depends on the players and whether or not the players are getting it. You know, like I, I do a lot of playtesting with a lot of very different levels of players, right? Like in understanding of games. And I expect that certain players are going to miss stuff like that all the time, you know, and other ones are going to pick up on it all the time. So, so to me that weighs heavily as a factor, like I have no problem, you know, setting them up a certain way. I just want to make sure that I'm doing it in a way that's going to give me useful feedback. Like, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? No, I, I I absolutely get what you're saying. I I just think it's it's an extra tool in your repertoire for testing that uh, can be can be utilized. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I don't disagree. I think along those same lines, you can um, you could give people like, what clicked for me with this was you were like, if I give you all a hand of spades, then you're like, oh, I care about spades. You know, one of the things you can definitely do in your play testing is things like give them goal cards, right? And ensure on one play test that everybody has goal cards that completely are unrelated. So mm-hmm. I care about spades, you care about hearts, right? Um, but then on another one, give them goal cards that are the same, 
right? Or very tightly related, even if the game wouldn't actually do that. Because then you can see, like in an experiment, like what happens when everyone wants hearts uh, in some way or another, you know? Um, Because you know what happens if everyone wants hearts and one person wants spades, right? Person who Mm -hmm. wants spades should handily win. And if not, (laughs) maybe that's a whole other issue. But, you know, making players battle it out for the same thing uh, Mm -hmm. is going to have an impact. You know, the question is how much of an impact. And I think sometimes that's obviously knowable before you are playing and it's not something you have to test Mm -hmm. um which is why you know a lot of times secret goal cards are not um you know they're they're not duplicated in a way that somebody would end up with the same exact goal or very close goal um well and, and so this actually leads to one of my other my other notes is um components uh and cards that you don't intend on being in the final version of the game and (laughs) Those those secret goals are a really good example of like I need I need to know if a player can execute this strategy and like let, let's say that the so there's there's a there's a game I've I've played a couple times in development um, uh, about uh, collecting students for a university and so if nobody ever collects athletes for instance giving somebody a card that secretly says like you get 20 bonus points for having the most athletes at the end of the game forces somebody to say like, Hey, like this is actually a lot more worth it. And now you have to figure out like, okay, is this strategy, you know, valid and you can shave those 20 points off at the end and compare at that point. But Mm -hmm. asymmetrical player powers are also another way you can test uh, your design and say, you know what? Like, I might get rid of drafting. So I'm going to give this player an asymmetrical player power that says they don't draft at all. They just draw cards. Okay. Right. And right. that's a way that you could have four players playing objectively a different version of your game all at the same time with these asymmetrical player powers without necessarily knowing it and mm-hmm. seeing who engages with the game on what level and, and has the most fun, I think could be a really, really great way to kind of multitask your own play test. Right. That, no, I like that a lot. I, I do. So one question that came up was, so you said the 20 points for the most athletes, right? But nobody mm-hmm. ever collects athletes and that's super broken. You're doing that to super encourage them. Right. So the game has ended, right? Mm-hmm. I've won handily because I had, you know, three athletes, everybody else had one to zero to one. And mm-hmm. so I get 20 extra points and I win the game. Like, and let's say it's not me. Somebody else does. And I'm sitting across watching them win. And I look at you and I'm like, what the hell, Jack? Like, why is this card so unbalanced? Like, what do you say to them? I, I say that the game is still in need of balance, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> See, um, like, I, I would I mean, I mean, you can absolutely. And you know what? Like, you can give that like plus 20 points to everybody for different things. Um it is like, especially like when you're play testing, like most ga- like especially heavyweight games, like this one is, um, it's it's difficult to know how much point value to give to anything. And if people are like, twenty points is way too much to give to that, maybe it should be ten. Then that has already told you that the athletes are a little underpowered because you need that extra ten points in order to be encouraged to do that strategy anyway. If people say, oh, that 20 points is just free points because the athlete strategy is so good and nobody's used it till now. Now you know that it's maybe a telegraphing problem that the game is not conveying to players 
the value of athletes in this in this example. Right. I guess that I have enough imposter syndrome that I <laughs> am terrified to look like a moron in front of my player Tate testers, right? Like to be like Jason, this is obviously not balanced. Why? Why? Like, you should know better than this. To be like, I, I would think I'd just be like, I did it on purpose. I lied. I wanted you all to have this problem. I mean, I and you absolutely can tell your players that. Like, I, I, I like, I maybe they're like, honestly, like, I, I haven't been in a situation where I've had to just like fess up and be like, hey, I totally lied about this. Um, Except maybe in some RPG like tabletop type stuff where I where I've kind of like fudged some things in order to make sure that things go a certain way when they weren't right, supposed right. to. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of talk about table ethics that that can be had when people are sitting down for a game that is expected to be balanced and whatnot. But um, within the scope of a play test, I think it's okay to say, "Hey, I was testing out this strategy." I decided to give somebody some extra points for doing that strategy and it worked or it didn't, you know, um, similarly. And, and this is, this is something we discussed in a recent play test and, and I'll let you discuss it to the level that you want. Um, but telling players that there is risk when there is not risk, um, <laughs> is something that you can do to kind of encourage players to play a certain way, play a little more timidly, um, or, um, in, in this case, what I, what I like to do is kind of establish like, Hey, there's some risk if you do this thing and here's how it's resolved. And maybe the risk is like actually zero. Maybe it's incredibly low, mm -hmm. um, but letting players do the thing anyway in, and take that risk. And let's say every time the risk turns out to be zero, um, that still tells you how much this particular action in the game is valued by the players that they're willing to take that risk to do it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I can give some more information on that. That is actually new to you as well. So uh, I'm not going to go into details about the game, uh, but Jack uh, was an awesome play tester on one of my games and suggested that we include some, uh, some, some risk for players uh, when, because, because basically, uh, Jack, they, they took an action that was not allowed and then said, well, we'll see what Jason does with it. And I didn't have an answer because I expected people to follow the rules uh, and then made the mistake of asking Jack to play test my game, <laughs> who was like, I'm not going to follow the rules. Just deal with it. Uh, and because it's an RPG, you were able to get away with that. Um, and you kind of called the bluff about like, I didn't want the game to end, uh, which theoretically would have for you not following the rules. Um, so you suggested adding some some level of risk uh, or perceived risk to the game. So I did that. And I actually did a, another playtest of this game at Grand Con. And with the playtest of that game uh, at Grand Con, I included uh, four risk cards um, that all had different texts on them. But all of them were the same thing, which essentially was that nothing bad happened. Um, but the risk that it could happen next time. Um, and because the cards were different, the perceived risk was greater, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so afterwards, uh, when the players, I think they drew one of the cards. And then afterwards, when they, um, so one of the players picked up the rest of the cards and said, I want to see what's on these, right? And as they read them, they kind of smiled and were like, there was no actual risk here. I said, no, there wasn't. H how do you feel about that? Because there it is. I mean, I was lying to the to players, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
and they were like this that's fantastic so like what a great idea <laughs> because it doesn't matter that there wasn't risk it matters that we thought there was risk mm-hmm. you know um and uh and i i gave props to you uh for the people there that knew you i was like hey like this was jack's idea and they you know thought this could change the way people perceived it and they said it absolutely positively did so oh, that's awesome um, yeah so that is in now and it's great because it's you know i want the game to be 18 cards and uh i was able to budget 14 cards for the one thing mm-hmm. four more cards for that boom we're at 18 and um and the limited draw pile of that i actually consider putting it down to even three if i needed to because that limited draw pile makes people feel like one of these cards is going to be bad right right (laughs) you know and and they actually suggested like i basically put in the rules if you if you don't follow this then you have to do x and then look at this card and they actually suggested don't say you have to do x just say you have to look at this card and then have the card say "Ooh, plot stuff also you have to do this thing um which is basically just put something else in right so that um, that really, it, it messed with their minds in a very positive way. And they were all appreciative of that. Um, so I was afraid when they looked, they were going to be like, Hey, this, this is now that I know this, I'm annoyed, but nope. They were like, that's well, I, what a good trick. Yeah. I, the way I would read it is it's like, uh, when a parent is like throwing a child up and and you know letting them feel like they're falling for that brief second but right. the parent never actually lets them go or at least i assume that parents don't let these kids go oh no you toss them right up in the air you just gotta you gotta pay attention to how high you toss them that's really the thing okay um but i mean but some the parents idea i is did that yeah the idea is still that you're experiencing that danger you're still having that catharsis of that danger being there but then you realize like there were guardrails in place the whole time so right. you it's almost like you feel a little bit safer um right uh and i also want to throw out um i am not just like an absolute like monster in playtest who's going to break all of the rules the rule that i broke i did not perceive as a rule because of the way that it was presented within the story uh so so i don't want people to think right, like, oh right. jack's just gonna walk in and be like these cards are mine i don't care what your rules are no no in this it was an rpg you know and um and it was a first play test the rules were not as set in stone as they could have been um and i frankly i thought I, at the time i was like oh no but then seeing the reaction to it i was like oh no this is good like you know get some emergent gameplay there where you were like i understand mm-hmm. this is the rules but i i'm not going to cooperate um you know i'm gonna do this instead and just and just take the risk um i will say too that when the players asked me one of the players said why though why only the perceived risk and not an actual risk you know what i i responded Mm -hmm. by asking the question how would you have felt if the game had just ended right then you know like because that could have been the risk right is that Mm -hmm. you like because some of the other feedback was like hey have them roll a dice or something, you know, for a chance for the game to end. And I was against that. And it's because I don't want the game to end, you know? And Mm -hmm. so that's what I said. I said, I want you to be nervous, but I also want you to get the full experience of this. And they were like, yep, that makes total sense. You know, because they agreed that had the game ended there, they would have been disappointed that they didn't get to um, do the whole experience, even if the whole experience was hard. 
Also, mm-hmm. in that playtest, it was just like with yours, um, where um, when you get to a certain point, like the first few turns, are like this is easy, and then you cross that line, and all of a sudden, the game is no longer fun and no longer easy. <laughs> um, and that's exactly what I'm what I'm pushing for. So, mm-hmm. and when I say no longer fun for listeners, it's it's just no longer easy, right? It's like it's like a roll and write game where you are filling in things and you're like, I am so good at this game. And then it's like the first time I played Rolling America. I'm like, this is so easy. I am so good at this. And then when I have like six states left, I'm like, I made bad choices. Like mm-hmm. Mistakes were made. Uh, and now I hate this game for the next 10 minutes while I finish it. So <laughs> then I'm like, let's play it again. So, you know. Right. All right. Sorry, that was a digression. But yeah, I do think that that was a way to not just lie to playtesters, but to players, right? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. the final version of the game will likely have something like that baked into right. it. Right, right. And, and, and yeah, and I think I think lying about the risks in the scope of a game is, again, it's a good way to give your players a boundary, but allow them to overstep that boundary as a way of testing, like, how much do they value this thing? Um, if you tell players, hey, you can draw beyond you know, five cards in hand, but here's the risk. Um, That gives players a reason to kind of want to do that thing to test the boundaries. And it also tells you how much value does this thing have if I'm going to institute something else somewhere else that lets them draw extra cards. Um, Right. Right. So, I mean, it's like any push your luck game, right? I mean, that's the whole point Mm -hmm. is there's a risk with every role you decide what you want it to be. Um, so my last two, I, I would say, are the most spicy. Um, oh! <laughs> uh, the first one is that uh, if your players ask you a question and you're not sure, pretend like you're sure and say, it's this. And the reason that I say that is that I, I'm in a lot of playtests where a question will come up and the designer will say, well, how do you want to resolve? Like, how would you expect that? And and while I, I agree that that can be valuable. Sometimes it's really nice to get that gut reaction of it works like this. And then the players are like, Oh, that feels bad. Or, Oh, that feels good. Or Mm -hmm. that's exciting. Um, Getting a reaction is to me, at least more important than getting a player to say, "Ah, like normally a game would work like this. So I would expect it to work like that. Um, And so, like, there was there was an instance uh, I was playing uh, uh, play testing a game last night, and um, uh, how points were divvied out. Uh, kind of, there was like a question about how they they where they go or where they were supposed to go, and whether or not they were accessible to other players to steal. And again, we had a similar question of, well, you know, how do you feel like that should be resolved? And you know the player feedback was mostly like, I like, I don't want people to steal my stuff. So I would rather just have it off to the side. Um, But that doesn't necessarily create an interesting experience in this game, which is supposed to have take that consequences. And so if the designer goes by what the players said in the instance, the designer is just going to be like, all right, well, all of your, all of your resources are safe. And now a lot of my cards don't actually do the thing that they're supposed to do. Uh, whereas if the designer was like, you put your stuff here and now it's at risk, the players might in, in that instance say that feels really, really bad, but mm-hmm. it 
it gets them into that mind state of like, oh, but that means I can steal somebody else's stuff, like very immediately. Right. right. Um, and and I think there's there's a lot of circumstances in which you know players are going to ask you things that you don't know the answer to, like uh, I like this thing sounded like a suggestion, uh, so I'm just going to ignore it and and break that part of the game and see what you do, which we mm-hmm. just talked about. Um, and in that instance, like, I, I mean, uh, the, the instance we're talking about with Jason's game, I, I think that it, it would have been very hard to make a snap decision in that moment. Um, which is, which is why we just kind of played as, as was, um, but... well again, yeah. Cause my other only option was either a, it, you can do that or the game is over. Mm-hmm. And one of those ended the play test and gave me a lot less information than I needed. And the other one kept it going um well changing the way people looked at the game so mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and so i think i think that was an instance where you made that snap decision of you know the game continues you you added uh you know a dramatic flair uh to the situation mm-hmm. um which which felt good um but it also meant that we as players could kind of like look at the situation as it had resolved and react to it, which get, which I think gave you much more immediate feedback from absolutely like, for, based on our responses than if if everything paused and you were just like, okay, like how does everybody feel? Do you want to stop the playtest now? Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care because I don't. Like, I need right. a full playtest here. <laughs> um, but what you were saying though about you know um, what you were just saying before that in regards to. Um, you know, asking players, like, what would you do in this situation? So one thing that I've done before, and I've caught some flack for this from some other designers who don't think this is a good idea. So I'm super interested to hear what you think about it, um, is that I, uh, when it comes to um, publishers and pitching, if I'm playing a game with a publisher and pitching and the publisher, like, confidently says, like, I, I can I do this or I can do this, right? And I can see that they want to do it. Unless doing that thing would ruin everything about the game, um, I always say yes, because they want to do it, right? It's a pitch. I want them to enjoy it. And even if it's a little bit game breaking, guess what? We can fix it after we sign a contract. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, like like all of this is is playtesting you know, conversation, uh, pitching a publisher is a very different thing. Um, I don't know that I'm very good at it, so I'm probably not the person to talk to about it. Um, well, I just, I was taking it from the the perspective of like, I mean, essentially you're lying in the fact that like they said, can I do this? Oh yeah. Because they wanted to, cause I, I used to say no. Right. Uh-huh. And I've had publishers be like, Oh, well you should, you should think about that. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and it just kind of annoys them. So like if, if I, you know, if I say, cause the, to me, the goal of play testing a game with a publisher mm-hmm. is that when you're done with it, they've had a positive experience. Yeah. Um, it's why, you know, you don't, um, you don't like purposely do super damaging things to them. Like if you're playing a take that game, unless that's the point mm-hmm. and you want that and then you do more of that. Right. You know, if I was pitching to Smirk and Dagger, I would certainly make sure to um, to do some take that right in the game um, against the against uh, the publisher. Um, but in general, you don't want to like 
purposely like be grieving them right like, <laughs> i'm just gonna keep making you lose ha 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 so yeah so I was just curious your your thoughts on that, but yeah, it sounds like you're mostly on the same page there. Yeah, so, yeah, right? like like um, I might it it would really depend on on what it is. Um, in some cases, I might I might explain why that's not the case if it's something like really right, fundamentally right. breaking. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of times, I'm very much like like yeah, let's try it out, and and that kind of sends the signal of you know that's not something that I've accounted for. While also saying, like, I'm flexible on the design and we can do this. Um, Yeah. And I so I've done that, too, where I say, well, you can't. Here's here's why I think you can't, mm -hmm. um, because that would require this, this and this. And sometimes they'll be like, no, no, I don't think it would. Or other times like, oh, yeah, good, good point. You Mm know, Um, so, yeah, I do think that it's there's an opportunity there. And I mean, I'm not always like, oh, you want to just do this OP move? Do it, right? <laughs> but like, it, it kind of comes along with the idea of Jonathan Schaffer is always talking about like, you know, if possible to say yes, mm. say yes, right? Yeah. Because they want to do the thing. So unless there's a reason for them not to, which you may know better than they know, um, I mean, hopefully you would know better than they know, you designed it, but um, it's it's worth noting that they want to do this thing. So that's a positive thing to them. So let's let them do it if, if it's okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times, I mean, at least for, for myself, I usually try to have really strong guardrails in place by the time I get to the pitching stage to where questions like that usually don't come up very often. Um, it's usually pretty, pretty evident, like what, a, what the player can and cannot do. Um, and a lot of that's just mm-hmm. getting unguided playtesting going so that uh i've already dealt with those before i get to the the publisher stage that that said you know there's a lot of different ways that can go but uh that's that's just kind of where i fall on that um is i don't know i don't know it's tough to know sometimes yeah all right my my final spicy take in the realm of lying to your playtesters your design is in early stage development, no matter how late stage it is. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Tell me why. So, so uh, <laughs> this is mainly because I I don't like to uh, do or say things that are going to prevent players from giving uh, feedback unless it's something that I'm very specifically have already dealt with or I'm already okay with. Um, but I see a lot of. Uh, play tests at what what is called the middling stage or they say that they're at late stage development and this this for me tends to look like it does two things one is um players expect a certain amount of polish and can sometimes be frustrated if the polish is not there and so they they kind of have a bad time because they hyper focus on the areas that they don't consider polished and the second is that they will cut their feedback to things that they consider changeable within the scope of the architecture you already have, rather than giving feedback about the architecture when you actually may need it. Um, and so uh, as, as, as an example, um, I, ha- I have a word association game and it's got a long section of dead air while one player is designing the, the word association puzzle and the other players are closing their eyes. Um, at the beginning of that, I will say, 
I don't need feedback about the fact that this has, you know, uh, downtime. The game is going to have downtime. I'm okay with that. But um, even though I consider the game basically done, it is pitched as an early process or early development game because I want feedback at all levels of the architecture. And I think that right. that can be very valuable. And in this particular uh, in this particular instance, it's given me some really great ideas for variants that I can include in the play uh, that I wouldn't have gotten if I was like, this is late stage. All I'm looking for is feedback on the rules or the balance or you know what have you. Um, and keeping an eye out for those like variant opportunities is something that is very hard to do when you are telling people that it's already a baked design. Yeah, I, so I think I agree with you. I mean, I do agree with you mostly, but then I'll <laughs> say that, you know, I, well, I just, I think there are times when you, I, this is going to sound jerky, but you don't want to be bothered with <laughs> a bunch of people's huge ideas about how to reinvent your game. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I've seen this firsthand with other designers, um, where they've got a game that looks fairly late stage, feels fairly late stage. And then people are like, you know, have you considered just completely revamping this? You know, and that's just not what you want to hear a lot of times at that mm -hmm. point. Um, and so I, I would say this, I, I agree with you with the exception of when the game truly is very close to done and you need specific feedback, right? Mm -hmm. um, and or if you're not able to get a lot of playtests in at that point anymore, that's where you need that specific feedback and you need that to, you kind of need to hone that in for each playtest, right, right? right? Um, That said, if that's specifically not what you're looking for um, and you do want all levels of feedback, then absolutely you should say that. I think that's a great idea, you know? Uh, even to say like i got a few play tests of this under my belt but i'm still really yeah, open yeah. to pretty um, much anything except for graphic design don't talk to me about graphic design <laughs> yeah um yeah so so the two things i'll throw out there is that the late stage stuff i will i i usually won't even say the the word play test i'll say balance testing um yeah that's good and, yeah, and yeah. that hyper focuses on are the points where they need to be are the cards where they need to be you know that sort of thing and the other thing is that um that that player that's going to give you have you considered making an entirely new game that kind of creates this nice little bucket of my game is not for this player and i don't need to worry too much about their feedback because they want a different game um, right right and right. if i'm in the late stage then i can say hey that's 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 a great idea i'll think about it and then i can focus on the player who's like i really like everything that's going on here and maybe we can do this um, mm -hmm. And I think that that creates it, it's it's uh, it's the self self um, what it, the self self opting out kind of concept of um, you you have given me the information I need to tell me that you're probably not the play tester for this game that I need to focus on. Right. Yeah. That's that's fair. That's fair. But I mean. <laughs> What if you had said to that player, though, hey, I just need some balance feedback, and they had good balance feedback for you, but you missed out on that because they thought it was early enough that they could change the whole thing, right? I mean, literally just playing devil's advocate and not in the in the weird way. Um, you know what I mean? Like, not in the negative yeah. way. Just saying, like, hey, you might miss out on some good stuff. And well, I think and, and, and yeah, like, I'm not... 
I'm not suggesting you throw them in the bucket and throw the bucket in a river. Um, <laughs> like, like there are very few play testers. It sounded I've, like you were. <laughs> there are very few play testers I've felt that way about. Um, but uh, I think that you can give them that opportunity to have that, like, have you considered making an entirely different game? And then you can kind of focus in. And what, what often happens is if you do have a play tester at the table that does like the architecture and it does kind of move towards talking about balance, the rest of the players will then jump in and say, yeah, actually, like, I felt like this was balanced or unbalanced or whatnot. Um, and, and again, a lot of this is just spicy takes that some people will disagree with. Um, and it's not going to work for every situation. It's just it's it's extra tools to have um, because you can lay the groundwork for that, like, more open ended feedback. And then you can hyper focus mm-hmm. after that. Um, and And again, like. At the point at which you're looking for very specific balance testing, you call it balance testing, and you very specifically tell players what you're looking for at that. But like, like right, at the right. middling stage, I almost never see the value in saying that this design is baked to the point that the core loop is there. Because if the core loop feels really, really bad to a particular player, it is absolutely worth at least having that discussion. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I mean, I, I do think that if you want to be honest with your play testers, and I know this goes against the whole purpose of this episode, <laughs> um, but I think that it's safe to just say, Hey, listen, I feel pretty good about the core loop of this game. I think it's working. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, I would really love your thoughts on, you know, if you feel like it's not, let me know. You know, um, I, I had this issue with haphazard cadabra where like, I said, this is an early prototype. This is, you know, a second play test. And I was getting feedback that was like, basically like this game is not, you know, the transitions aren't streamlined enough. And like there's, you know, and then that same person went on to then suggest all the ways that I could make the transitions worse by scoring differently. Um, that made it way harder to make the transition between the, the, the two parts of each round. Mm -hmm. Um, so so, you know, I mean, and that was saying like, hey, this is an early stage game and they were giving me issues about, you know, final like, yeah, you know, I, they I were mean, giving me I think because there's a lot of 3D printed pieces. Mm-hmm. So they were like, hey, you know, you've done a lot of printing and work on this. Therefore, it must be, you know, close to finished. And it's like, no, like I just have a 3D printer and some time. So, yeah, I, I mean, like, you're always going to have um, you're always going to have players that. Uh, you know can't read the room for what you're looking for um you know i i cannot tell you how early stage uh games i've brought to the table and still been told um you really need to you know work on the graphic design or you know like do you have an artist for this and i'm like it's it's scraps of paper on notebook um no i don't have an artist yet um you should just be like yeah i mean look at their work it's fantastic (laughs) this is all hand designed by them i paid a thousand dollars for this just throw that out there see what they think now now we're getting to the you should use sarcasm on your play testers uh (laughs) portion of the of the of the episode um but yeah uh, yeah so i mean that's 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 all of my notes uh for for the the topic and all of it comes with the caveat of like you know what like like your goal is is testing your game and making a better game and there are there are tools that i think you can utilize that not everybody recognizes uh 
that mm. that can really help that. Um, they can make right, a right. single play test as valuable as ten play tests doing it, you know, just just out of you know out of the box, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah, I think that yeah, I mean I, I think we covered a lot of interesting points here and and I do think that it's valid, you know, trying to get your playtesters to give you the type of feedback you want, um, you know, from simple things like setting up hands in a certain way, which, by the way, you should always do for, for pitching, always, um, you know, because then it's predictable. You know what's going to happen. Right. Uh, you should also do that for teaching if you can, uh, because it really does make it easier to, to follow the thing and do the thing. But, um, yeah, you know, to a uh, line about um, what stage of development you're in. I, I think those are all valid tools. You know, I think it, a lot of it is just reading the room and reading your playtesters pregame and deciding, you know, what what things you can do. I think my favorite thing you said, because I really didn't expect it, was to make your symmetrical game asymmetrical for certain playtests uh, to test multiple things at once just to see how it looks and feels for each player. Um I really like that. That is something I definitely is a takeaway for me that I did not ever consider doing. Um, and I like that. Yeah, I would just be like, okay, let's just try drawing instead of drafting. But the idea to say half of you draft, half of you draw, let's see what happens. Um, yeah, that's, I love that. Cool. Would, would you uh, like to pitch a game? Uh, well, my most recent game that I'm working on is Food Crimes. Uh, it, it, uh, it came together over a weekend after, uh, some, some chatting during, uh, the last protospiel online. And it is a game in which players get a, a lineup of foods and they are trying to determine the worst combination of foods and you get points for overlapping exactly with somebody else. And then there's a few twists thrown in there. Like you'll get a modifier that says, you know, it fully blended or ice cold or, uh, as a still life hanging in a museum uh, and you're, you're trying to figure out what the worst combination is based on that and some discussion. And if you overlap with somebody, you get uh, a bratwurst. And if you get the most bratwurst by the end of the game, you're the absolute worst. I love that. Um, it, it, it's interesting because you're trying to match with other players because I, I assume, correct me wrong, I know you haven't done a ton of play testing on this, but like, you're going to get some players where they're not going to match because one player is going to be like, that sounds good. Right. right. And other players are like, that sounds like I'm going to puke. So, so there's, there's actually two rounds of matching. Uh, the first is you're just doing like your, your initial, like I hate these two foods together. And then you can kind of discuss, and then you take back your votes, you reveal the modifier and then you're trying to match based on the oh. previous discussion and the modifier combined. That's good, Jack. And That's so, really good. So if I do a really good job of convincing you that my combo is the worst and you convince me that your combo is the worst and we flip-flop, neither of us gets points. Or you might be like, <laughs> oh, no, this sounds good if it's like cooked. And then yeah. you're like ice cold. Mm, mm, mm. Nope. Right. Nope. Or, or if this is a still life, this looks a lot worse than it tastes. And that that matters more, right? Um, right. Yeah. Right. There's there's a few there's a few in there that um you know that just the taste alone is not the only thing that matters, um and so that that also throws a wrench into the works. Um, it's it's up on screen top. Uh, we can put a link in the uh, thing. It's fully playable. It's it's fully baked uh, with rules and everything, and uh, it's so far has been very amusing. 
Still heard it's in very early stages of development, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. I would love to try that. Uh, you have a knack for coming up with super weird ideas that really sound fun to me. So, I, Well, so now I already want to do another game because somebody was uh, moving around the bratwurst and they, they said something, something bratwurst. And now I want to make a sausage-based word <laughs> game called bratwurst. You should do that. Yes, you should do that. All right. Awesome. This has been a super fun discussion. I love this. I always love chatting with you about stuff. Um, I uh, am curious if people want to find you, what's the best place to find you currently uh, on on the lines? Um, Yeah. I, so I discord is honestly a really easy way to contact me. If you're on the building the game podcast, um, or a lot of game design uh, discords. I just got onto Blue Sky, so uh, my name is just Jack Rosetree. I'm also on Twitter, but not active. I'm also on Facebook, but not really active. Um, so yeah, uh, if, if 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 there is a thing, uh, I'm probably on it and do at least keep an eye on my inbox. <laughs> um, and That's then fair. if you want to try out my games, I have uh, stuff on uh itch.io which is all my experimental and rpg stuff uh jackrosetree.itch.io and then all of my board games are on screentop screentop.gg forward slash at symbol jackrosetree and your cats have opinions about all of yes they're they're saying (laughs) it's where's there a cat and i was like oh yeah jack has cats (laughs) they're saying it's dinner time even though it's 11 in the morning right 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 that sounds like cats uh, they're letting all the listeners know, like, this person does not feed me. Ever. <laughs> yep. I'm going to need your help. <laughs> all right, listeners. Well, hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can, of course, go to buildinggamepodcast.com. You can email us buildinggamepodcast at gmail.com. At our website, you'll find a link to our Discord, which I very much encourage you to uh, join because it's a lot of fun and it's very useful. And we have some really good combos there. Um, but of course, the easiest way to always keep in touch with our minds, our hearts, and our feelings and everything, really, our souls, is to come back every single week. But until next time, good night. Bye. Building the game, building the game, with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. Building the game, building the game, with Jason and friends, with Jason and friends. The end of the episode, that's when it technically ends.